And I, and I remember I had a patient, a really great guy, sort of a, he was a farmer, lived outside of Denver, Colorado. This is Dr. Tom Maddox. I'll introduce him later. And um, at 67, I just can't remember his age, but he, um, he just had terrible coronary disease. And he had had a bypass about 10 years ago, a couple of PCIs since, four MIs. And he was doing his level best. He and his wife were obviously petrified that he would have another heart attack. Um, he fortunately recovered well, so he was still working on the farm and, you know, enjoying a quality of life, but very worried about a subsequent event, particularly one that would rob him of his ability to live the life he wanted to. So they did, you know, I mean, they were sort of standard Colorado farmers. They had a meat, potatoes kind of lifestyle. His wife, you know, totally, they didn't go vegan. That's a little hard for a Colorado yeah. farmer to do, but they did at least make serious lifestyle changes. I can't remember if he used to be a smoker, but he certainly had no exposure to tobacco now. Um, you know, and he did everything he could from a lifestyle point of view to be able to optimize his cardiac health, yet he continued to have cholesterol values north of 200, LDLs north of 200. And he was one of these guys who had legitimate statin intolerance. I mean, you could look, look a statin could look at him and he would sort of ball up in muscular pain. And it wasn't one of, sometimes people, I think, mistake, you know, joint pain or other arthritic pain for statin myopathy. This guy, not at all. And he was super stoic guy. He would have powered through anything, but he was totally debilitated. Could not do any of his chores on the farm with any dose of statin, even once a week. So now he's he's trucking along, can't get the therapy we know works, doing everything he can from a lifestyle point of view. Cholesterol number is still around low 200s. This is the guy who needs a PCS k This is AP Cardiology, and this is your host, Andrew Perry. Hey, it's Andrew. PCSK9 inhibitors are a relatively recent addition to the armamentarium for cholesterol-lowering medications. They were first approved by the FDA in 2015. And they work really well, and they reduce your LDL levels by upwards of 50%. But the uptake in clinical practice for these drugs has been modest, and that's being generous. A lot of these issues stem from its cost. I wanted to learn more about how these drugs fit best into clinical practice. So I visited with Dr. Tom Maddox. My question about PCSK9 inhibitors spawned a discussion about the greater topic of how to reduce a population's overall cardiovascular risk. Dr. Maddox has a lot of interesting, innovative, and cool ideas around this subject. So I really enjoyed talking with him, and I think you'll enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening. And thanks for meeting with me today. I really appreciate it. Yeah. So uh, Tom Maddox, I'm a professor of medicine at Wachee School of Medicine in the Division of Cardiology. It's, uh, the other role I have here is the director of the Health Systems Innovation Lab, um, but that may be a little bit less germane to the PCSK9 conversation. Gotcha. Okay. So I guess, could you first maybe just describe how the first concept of PCSK9 inhibitors came about, where that was discovered or where that first idea came from? Yep. Yeah. Um, so PCSK9 
uh, is an, uh, an enzyme that the body manufactures, and it's evolved in LDL metabolism. So the idea is that uh, in, in just sort of its natural state, it's involved in the destruction of um, LDL as it's metabolized by, um, by the liver. And it's also um, involves destruction of the LDL receptors. So the problem with that is that if you have less LDL receptors uh, expressed by the liver, then less of the circulating LDL is taken out of circulation. So as a result, you have higher levels of LDL um, in the bloodstream, and then it can be oxidized and deposited in the coronary arteries or other vascular ducts. Mm -hmm. So elevated levels of PCSK9 um, were noted to have that correlation to increase the LDL. I want to just give a quick side note about some of the history behind PCSK9 and the drug development, because it's really fascinating and just is an example of how modern science really contributes to uh, modern medicine. So after the cholesterol pathways were identified in basic science labs, then the gene for PCSK9 was identified first, I think, in a French cohort, and a gain of function of the PCSK9 led to familial hypercholesterolemia in this French cohort. Similarly, in a Dallas cohort of African Americans, it was noted that a loss of function mutation in the PCSK9 gene led to lower levels of LDL and correspondingly lower risk for cardiovascular disease. And this is what then spawned the further drug development. Although in the first clinical trials for them initially showed fairly substantial reductions in LDL, mm -hmm. like 50, 60% right. of those. Yeah. Um, but none of those were really targeted for like mortality or heart out points. Yeah, so those are our phase correct. one, phase two studies where you basically want to understand is the mechanism we believe to be true, true? And is there any sort of early signs of a safety problem? or other uh, unintended consequences that would um, torpedo any, you know, any good effect mm -hmm. of a particular intervention. So you're right. So that there's been a variety of phase one, phase two. On average, we were seeing um, a drop of 50 to 60 percent. It was really pretty impressive. And this was even true in the background of statin therapy. So it appeared to be additive, you know, one of the more uh, novel and pretty promising frontiers in cholesterol metabolism. And then was Fourier the first large clinical trial, like a large phase three clinical trial, or were there others prior there to that? There was SPIRE, so S-P-I-R-E, one and two. That was um, that was done, came out about a year before Fourier. Okay. And then there's a third trial that will probably come out, I think, later, or in late 2018, I think it's right, and that's Odyssey. Okay. So these are different formulations, different patient populations. Um, of PCSK9s, but all of them are PCSK9s. All of them are um, phase three type trials, and they're looking primarily at cardiovascular efficacy of their use. Okay. The what are the patient populations that those are looking at? You mentioned there's some some differences between the two mm -hmm. or the three. Mm -hmm. um, are they primarily looking at like secondary prevention of? coronary disease mm -hmm. and patients with familial hypochrysolaremia? Is it like these two groups? I ask specifically that because I, I think that's what the indications from like the FDA are, exactly. are for those two populations. So I presume those are probably the populations that have been studied in Spire and Fourier. That's right. <clears throat> and um, 
there were, Spire had both populations that are FOIA, and it was, um, they defined them a little bit differently, but by and large, it was folks with confirmed coronary disease and an inability to get what we believed at this time to be um, optimal LDL levels on background statin therapy. So typically, we're looking for folks to get an LDL below 70 on a maximum or maximally tolerated dose of statin. And so these are folks that were um, couldn't get it below 70. In some cases, there was a subset of Spire that couldn't even get below 100, you know, just based on that individual's responses to statins. So background risk was high, inability to modify at least the cholesterol profile was somewhat impaired by that patient's relative lack of response to statin therapy. Okay. So we looked at those folks, and then there was the familial hypercholesterolemia. That was defined somewhat variably, but largely it was just very high endogenous levels of LDL. Um, there was a little bit of genetic testing, but not all of them had the confirmed um, genetic mutations that we know are associated with that condition. Okay. Yeah. And what have been, like, overall results, at least from Spire and Fourier? Yeah, so the overall, the overall Spire, um, and you're testing my memory here, but the overall Spire is, was actually a little neutral. And uh, uh, it... Um, it didn't show as much of a benefit except in a second part of the trial called SPIRE-2, where they looked at folks at even a little bit higher risk. This was the group, confirmed coronary disease, and I believe they could not get their LDL levels below 100 on background statin therapy. And they showed a little bit of a benefit there. Um, so that was an early and sort of promising suggestion that there may be some actual hard outcome benefit for these particular medications. And there were some issues. You know, part of the issue is that the uh, PCSK9s are a monoclonal antibody, and so we're, we're sort of interacting with the patient's immune system. So we actually, in the Inspire, had a little bit of an issue where there was a substantial amount of um, immune response to the antibody, and so it started to uh, inactivate the medication. So there needed to be some rethinking about the formulation. Mm. But that said, you know, these both trials, Spire 1, um, Foyer and hopefully Odyssey are all showing an impact, even with that at play, you mm-hmm. know, and they're seeing a benefit after a couple of years of follow-up. So still seems somewhat beneficial. Good. And Foyer, its results from what I read, looking at the trial just again last night, mm-hmm. overall, no difference in mortality. Their composite outcome of mm-hmm. uh, death uh, or of MACE outcomes mm-hmm. was significant. Mm-hmm. Looks like it was primarily driven from reductions in myocardial infarctions. That's right. But overall, no difference in mortality and cardiovascular death. Right. So this is something I wanted to just uh, take a minute and spend on, <clears throat> is that it's a bit odd to me that we have these large trials not showing a difference in mortality when we know from prior studies on statins that a reduction in your LDL mm-hmm. is beneficial in terms of your of mortality. Yeah. And additionally, that's part of what the cholesterol guidelines were changed uh, when was that most in 2013 yeah. reflected that to then even have a lower target goal for those and more right. loose, um, maybe that's not the right word, but more broader indications for statin therapy. So it's odd to me that now we're getting into the point where additional targeted statin reducing therapies didn't result in a uh, reduction in mortality and cardiovascular death. Right. So one thing, so a way, a way I would think about it and the way that I think it's important to think about all trials and their various outcomes is if we don't see a signal is the answer. It doesn't 
happen or we don't know yet. And I think in this particular case, we do not know yet. And there's a couple of reasons I say that. One is um, the rates of death were quite small in the trial. So as a result, you're generally underpowered to understand what exactly is going on with the mortality signal because, frankly, not enough people have died to be able to see a difference between the two arms. Meaning that you can have a lot of people in your trial, but if they're not having enough events, that's really what's driving your power. Maybe not so much how many people you've enrolled, but it's your event rate. That's exactly right. So the idea, you know, the, the ability to distinguish between groups is dependent on the number of outcomes the group has. Now, that correlates, of course, with the size of the study. Just, you know, simple yes. math. The more people you have, the more events you're going to have. And so that's why, particularly in cardiology, now that we have such good background therapy, that's why we need to enroll thousands, sometimes over 10,000 patients, because now we're looking at effects that are relatively small and somewhat prolonged, particularly in this type of prevention trials, where it takes time for these kind of events and any benefit that would follow from a medicine to accrue. Mm-hmm. So I think at this particular point, and it's, also, it's another reason why we do these combined endpoint studies, too, because we're looking for any signal. You know, it's good to impact any of these outcomes. You don't want to have another MI. You don't want to die. Um, what were the other ones? You don't want to have a stroke. You don't want to have an emergent PCI. Mm-hmm. So we put them all together saying, hey, any, avoiding any of these is good. So do we have any signal that any of this is being impacted? And so that's why that's the primary endpoint, and that's what the headline results always are of a trial. But then you unpack the individual endpoints, and now we're getting to much smaller numbers. So you're always at a risk for mm-hmm. underpowering. I think the other thing, too, is the median follow-up time for Foyer is 2.2 years. Yeah. So that's not enough. That's pretty short. And just given the baseline death rates in these populations, not a lot of people are going to die in that relatively short time frame. So what will happen, and this has happened in all our statin trials, is these study investigators continue to follow the cohort, and they'll report out results in three years on the on the five-year data. And again, you know, down the road, they'll report 10-year data and all this stuff. So we'll continue to track this. So do we see a late mortality signal show up? And if that's true, obviously, we need to know that and, and be able to counsel our patients on the benefit we're providing. But I think I think because, A, it's a small event rate, and B, it's a short follow-up time, which, of course, are related, I think the answer right now is we don't know the impact of PCSK9's on mortality. Okay. If we postulate, to your point, that lower LDL does ultimately result in decreased cardiac death, then I would expect the mortality signal. But we, we don't have that data yet. Mm-hmm. One of the big things that it gets a lot of news about is cost. Mm-hmm. I think that's what most of the articles that I see popping up on it is how PCSK9 inhibitors can, their adjustment on a quality-adjusted life year or qualities yep. and policy indications, economic indications for that. Yes. How much do these cost? Like, ish? So, uh, annually, they are going to uh, cost whoever's paying, which is obviously primarily an insurer, they're going to cost uh, around $14,500. Okay. For a year? For a year's worth of therapy, okay. which typically is, you know, injections every two weeks. Okay. And I guess, what, why, first off, why do they cost so much? Because the, to, to be honest, because the drug company thinks the market will bear the price. Okay. And they go through extensive, you know, market surveys and uh, economic modeling and whatnot to set that price. And their rationale, and, I, you know, a lot of times uh, I think a lot is made of adversarial relationships between 
the public or maybe the, the physician community and, and pharma. And I, I think it's a little overblown. But at the end of the day, they have invested huge amounts of R&D dollar cost into, um, <clears throat> into developing this. And there's, you know, carcasses of ideas littered throughout their R&D labs that they invested a ton of money in and it went nowhere. So I think they view that when they do have a drug that shows benefit, that they want to bake into that cost a bit of the R&D expense that it took to get that to market and available. Um, the breakdown of how much should be in there, how much does it really end up being $14,000? Is that really true? I don't know. I don't have that kind of detail. Mm -hmm. I think there's been some debate around that. But nonetheless, um, that's what the companies have um, believed to be the value of the medicine on the market. Gotcha. Yeah. Are there any moves on making it more affordable or to lower that price in some way? So, you know, um, the, the pharmaceutical market is a bizarre one. You know, so if you study sort of classic market economics, I remember when I was an undergrad economics major, you know, the, the professors would get up and show us all these models and say, hey, you have this whole list of assumptions about what makes an effective market work. And it's things like, uh, you know, transparency of information between the buyer and the seller and a mobility of the buyer to move around. And if I don't like the price you're offering me, then I can go next door and get this price, et cetera. Almost all of those assumptions are violated in healthcare. <laughs> and so the ability to um, expect sort of the market to deliver in, in, in a, an effective fashion is probably not a good operating principle or not a realistic principle. Um, so to that end, patients, of course, and even, you know, smaller physician practices don't have much bargaining power. There's nobody else selling the med, um, that can't go anywhere else. So they're, they're basically facing a monopoly situation. Um, there's been some movement to band together, um, and, and negotiate saying that we'll, we'll come to the table with a large number of patients and practices that we represent. And we are going to collectively buy from you if you give us the price that we think is is more um, more fair or more uh, you know just the better price. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So one of the better one of the not better, but one of the ways that that's been done are these pharmacy benefit managers. And here in St. Louis, actually, we're home to the biggest one in the country, and that's Express Scripts. So they will band together with different practices and health plans and insurers, and it's an amalgam of folks, all of whom have an interest in getting this medicine. And they'll say, hey, to, you know, Amgen or, or uh, Sanofi or whomever's selling the medicine of interest, okay. hey, we represent, you know, X thousands and thousands of patients who potentially would buy this medicine, but we do not accept a $14,000 price tag. We need a discount. So when you look at the discounts across the country and average them together, right now it's roughly a 30% discount that a lot of those PBMs and other entities are getting. Okay. So now we're down to around 10000 or so. Okay. So that's kind of where we are. Um, even at that level, we are still seeing, um, that, uh, the, the value in the qualities, as you said, the quality adjusted life years is still far north of what the generally accepted, um, cost effectiveness ratio is. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I, is it helpful to have the background on how that works? Uh, yes, it would be. Okay. Yeah. So the, the, <clears throat> in sort of health economics, there's been um, sort of the standard developed of saying, well, you know, at the end of the day, healthcare costs money. 
And so for us to say something is free is just sort of fantasy land. We've got to recognize that we do need to pay for things that are valuable. But how much is it valuable? How, how much is it worth? And so there's a lot of um, debate and work around how do we value a life? And what does that mean? And is just being alive enough? Is it different if you're running around and playing with your kids versus alive on a ventilator in a you know, long-term acute care facility or something? Yeah. You know, that's all, all, all that was part of the nature of the debate. So we ended up with this quality adjusted life years. So it matters that you're alive and it matters that you have good quality of life. And so then with that, they said, all right, well, how much is it, how much should any intervention that delivers more of a quality be worth? How much should we pay for that? Uh -huh. That makes sense. And we've settled on roughly a number of 50 to a hundred thousand dollars per quality adjusted life year. And it came to be somewhat historically, that's actually how Medicare set the pricing for dialysis back in the sixties. Okay. And so they basically said, we're going to pay this much, roughly around $50,000 per quality adjusted life year of this dialysis intervention. We think that's, that seems to make sense. Okay. And so then that's kind of been the operating mantra for the decades following. Um, and there's been, you know, some people said, well, maybe, maybe 50 is a little restrictive. Maybe we can go up to a hundred. But I think once you get north of a hundred thousand dollars, I think most people are starting to say, mm, this might be a little bit more than it's worth. Um, you know, to the patient, to society, it's obviously a very complex sort of conversation and discussion. Um, and there's a lot of very valid opinions around it. But nonetheless, that's kind of what we're operating with. When we did the cost effectiveness studies for PCSK9s, they were coming in somewhere between $350,000 and $650,000 for quality adjusted life year. Wow. And even with that 30% reduction, we're not even close to $100,000, that $100,000 line. How far would the price then have to drop in order to hit that benchmark? Question. And it is, <laughs> where did I have it? Uh, so for us to hit the $100,000 threshold, um, the PCSK price is, should be $4,536. Okay. Yep. So almost $10,000 less than what we're currently seeing. Okay. I want to spend a minute and think about other statin-reducing therapies or other uh, therapies to reduce cardiovascular risk or other like behavior modifications. So, for example, the addition of uh, like zetamide mm -hmm. to statins, mm -hmm. maybe how that changes this picture. And then also, you know, taking somebody who's a smoker, knowing that they are at high risk, Mm -hmm. and maybe one of these patients who benefits the most from an expensive medication to reduce their risk. Mm -hmm. However, also getting them to quit smoking would also be a major reduction for their, mm -hmm. for their risk. Absolutely. So then now I guess that's kind of getting us into the picture of how this plays out into clinical practice of which patients we then start selecting for and who we, and which patients you're looking at your clinic and saying, I'm probably going to get more bang for my buck in helping you quit smoking yeah. uh, versus prescribing this medication, or this is the right patient who would benefit from that PCSK9. Yeah. Um, so I guess first let's tackle the, I guess let's first like tackle like smoking cessation. Okay. That one. Okay. Well, you're making my public health geek heart just smile with okay. all these sort of considerations. That's exactly the right way to think about it is as we look at our patient population, and we look at the various contributors, both things that are increasing their risk and then things we can do to reduce that risk. I think um, being thoughtful about 
what is really driving their risk and what can they do, not just pharmacologically, but globally to make the most impact. Um, all of us have limited time, all of us have limited resources. So if we can, in a pretty rigorous fashion, determine that for this patient, they're gonna get the biggest bang from their buck, maybe not even from an additional medicine, but from smoking cessation or dietary changes, weight loss, et cetera, and then really deploy resources to go after that. These lifestyle things are super hard. And one of the reasons that sometimes clinicians are like, oh yeah, yeah, lifestyle, and they kind of dismiss them, is it's just such a tough nut to crack, particularly in the context of the way our healthcare system is designed, where it's, you know, I see you every three months, or every six months, or 12 months, or 15 minutes, it's everything I can do to kind of get the information of what's happened and prescribe the right meds and get you out the door. Hardly enough time to sit down and go, let's talk about your diet. Let's talk about smoking cessation. Let's talk about these things you need to do every day in your life that I don't have a ton of insight into mm -hmm. to make a difference. So with that preamble, um, I think uh, there's some interesting work going on um, around the contributors to cardiovascular risk and incenting practices to invest their time and resources into those things with the most impact. So the most clear example we have is an ongoing trial called the Million Hearts Project, and it's being run out of CMMI, so the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation Center. So this came out of, this was a center that was funded out of the ACA back in 2010, and it was a group of folks connected to CMS who were charged with the task of let's, let's be innovative about how we pay for healthcare for our Medicare and Medicaid patients in a way that would incent providers and insurers and everybody else involved in this to, um, to provide more value and higher outcomes in the way we do it, as opposed to sort of our traditional fee for service where sort of it didn't really matter what the outcome is of what you did, just do some stuff that you can bill for and thus generate the revenue. Mm -hmm. So the group that worked on this particular project said, okay, we are gonna, we know that there's benefit in certain meds and cardiovascular disease, aspirin or statins. We also know there's benefit to uh, tobacco cessation, et cetera. All that goes into cardiac, cardiac, cardiac risk. So this, right now we use a 10 year pooled risk calculator to sort of say you, with your risk factors today, your risk for a cardiac event over the next 10 years is X. And that's the ASCBD risk score. The ASCBD risk about. score, exactly. Okay. And it was developed for that, and they used that. And so then they said, we're going to give you your risk score for your patient population. So let's say you have 1,000 patients. So we're going to take each of those individual risk scores, all 1,000, and aggregate them together. And then let's say that you know the average risk is 15%. So that's a pretty high-risk population. But yeah. some of your patients are going to be 5%. Some of your patients are going to be 30%. You have this mixture. So they, they said, so we're going we're gonna to calculate your baseline risk. And then for the next year, we're going to pay you based on how much you can get that aggregate risk down. Hmm. So what are you going to do? So what I'm going to do, what I would do, and what anybody would do, is you say, okay, well, how am I going to move that needle? Let me go find my high risk guys. So you start slicing and dicing the data and drill down to your patients who are at the 30% risk level. Why? So then they're going to start to say, okay, well, you know, I've identified of the 1,000, 100 are my really risky guys, and they're driving that average really up. So in that 100, what's going on? Well, a quarter of them are heavy smokers, and a quarter of them just are not getting their statin or are not adherent to their statin or they're not receiving this particular therapy. 
um, I'm sorry, I'm going to do thirds. A third aren't, um, are they're heavy smokers. A third are not taking uh, effective cholesterol therapies. And then a third have really elevated blood pressure. Okay. So now I'm going to invest my clinical resources into what I believe to be effective smoking cessation programs for that population. And even if it's a heavy smoker who maybe has the blood pressure a little bit over the, over the guidelines, that slight elevation of blood pressure isn't going to change their risk as much as quitting smoking. Uh-huh. So I may even say, you know what, just it's not optimal, but just keep doing what you're doing on the blood pressure side. But man, go to the smoking cessation clinics. Let me do everything I can to get you off those cigarettes. And we know that if they do that, their risk goes from 30% to, say, 15% over the course of that year. And then they contribute back to that overall average that I'm getting paid on and start to drop that average. Mm-hmm. So it basically, it's just it's, it's not the end-all, be-all solution. I'm not trying to apply that that's the case. But it is making us think with the motivator of pay, which is important, to say, where is the biggest bang for my buck? So for that population that's smokers, sure, they're really high risk. And maybe if you were saying, well, I want to give my PCSK9s to my highest risk patients, you might be tempted to say, well, give it to them. But I would argue, I haven't run this head-to-head comparison, but I suspect that the benefit that they would derive from getting off cigarettes far exceeds anything they could get from the PCSK9. So to my end, put aside this whole idea of getting them on that med and focus really on getting them off cigarettes. That would be a interesting new approach, at least from what I see and how I approach my patients in clinic. That's right. Because I frequently see them, and the things that I can change are the prescriptions. <clears throat> and so that's where I end up focusing my time on is, right. oh, your A1C is too high, so I'm going to fix that. That's right. I'm going to change your insulin. Your blood pressure is too high. I can change that. That's right. But really, you're still smoking. So maybe your A1C of being eight is okay, not a right. goal. Your right. blood pressure at you know now 145 over 100 is maybe not a goal. Right. But you're still smoking a pack a day. Maybe my 15 minutes with you is better spent formulating a plan and getting smoking cessation. I'm with you halfway. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but you're actually illustrating my point about incentives. And at the end of the day, if there's one sort of thing that I've learned, at least to date in my career, is incentives are so important. Um, and they, they, push, they, they push us to organize our mindsets and our work in ways that sometimes we're not even conscious of. So let me just unpack what you said a little bit. So you said, all right, what can I control in 15 minutes? Why the hell is it 15 minutes? You know why it's 15 minutes? It's because your preceptors in your internal medicine clinic know that they have to churn through a num- X number of patients to meet, the, meet their margins to keep the medical center going. It's not even a profit yeah. thing. It's literally keep the lights on. And, for and, our and resident pl- clinic, yeah, that's yeah. totally the case. Keep yes. the lights on, pay you, you know, not an awesome amount of money, but enough to be, you know, respectful of the, of the training and talent that you provide. You know, similarly pay the MAs and the nurses and the ancillary staff that do excellent work. Um, so anyway, the point is that that is at the, at the core. They know they're going to get paid if you churn through those patients. In reality, you know, could, would it be better if you had an hour? Absolutely. But they would, you would have to shut the lights off. You'd be out of a job in a year because you wouldn't be able to make that. So it, it illustrates that the governing payment model that we have is shaping how we put care together. And it's totally ineffective to have that kind of structure if we run a council and follow up on and support a patient through these really hard, complicated lifestyle changes like smoking cessation, et cetera. So... 
if we change the payment model and this Million Hearts project I talked about is an example, if we change that to where you're now paid for the outcomes you're delivering to your patients, I talked about you're delivering a risk outcome. You could also model it on, are they out of the hospital? Are they, I'm sorry, do they stay out of the hospital? Mm -hmm. Do they report good health? You know, are they dying less? That's, that's obviously a straightforward one. But you provide this sort of set of metrics. Then how would we reorganize care to try and deliver on that? Particularly if we're getting paid for it. At least we're getting, you know, we're not having the adverse incentive or the, uh, the, the, um, uh, the perverse incentive. That's what I mean. Of just being paid for churning people through in a volume basis. If we're paid for to deliver these outcomes, and let's take that smoking cessation example, I would argue you're probably not the right person to be working with that patient. You're yeah, the diagnostic. I have no training. Huh? You're not yeah. trained, and maybe you could get trained. That's a path. We maybe maybe we need better training in our physicians. Fine. Alternatively, we could expand our care team and get somebody who is trained in that. And the psychology and smoking cessation, uh, we, we know from our substance abuse communities that often when you get groups of patients together that are struggling through things like Alcoholics Anonymous, that provides a ton of support to have that community. Often they're led by prior alcoholics or maybe prior smokers or somebody who can give, you know, sort of the, the blow-by-blow firsthand experience, which often can be super effective for folks struggling with this. So there are things we know to do. But we don't necessarily have them integrated into our care team. So maybe the better approach is we take those of us who are trained in medicine that we, what are we good at? We're good at diagnosing. We're good at organizing some of these care processes and their relative contributions to health. But once we set that plan, maybe our job is to then hand it off to a very trained, comprehensive care team that has within it various skill sets around the psychology, the counseling, the community support, all the other things that I'm not necessarily that familiar with, but that are out there, they're known things mm -hmm. that can get folks to the place they need to be for optimal health. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I mentioned at the early on that one of my other roles is director of the Health Systems Innovation Lab. That's part of the charge of innovation labs, both here in WashU and then around the country. How do we think differently about care delivery that gets us to outcomes that are important for our patients and thus for us? Interesting stuff. Yeah. I, I'm realizing that I probably came to you with the wrong question, and that there's probably <laughs> a lot more interesting discussion that I that I uh, that I'm now discovering with you. So that's no, yeah. that's great stuff. No. Yeah. So there's so anyway, I didn't mean to get totally off tangent on the PCSK nines, but I think it is part of the overall conversation. No, it totally is, and that's I mean that's the whole reason to have a PCSK nine inhibitor is reducing you know, your risk of death or cardiovascular disease or improving your quality of life, not having a heart attack or et cetera. Yep. Yep. And so all this plays into that. I'll give you, you know, I, I, sometimes I think in addition to all the data we traffic in every day, you know, I think the stories are important too. And I think about, I'm relatively new to WashU. And for the last 10 years, I was in Colorado working at the VA hospital out there. And, you know, PCSK9s were approved in the VA system for select patients sometime in the last year or two. And I, and I remember I had a patient, a really great guy, sort of a, he was a farmer, lived outside of Denver, Colorado, and um, at 67, I just can't remember his age, but he, um, he just had terrible coronary disease. And he had had a bypass about 10 years ago, a couple of PCIs since, four MIs. And he was doing his level best. He and his wife were obviously petrified that he would have another heart attack. 
Um, he fortunately recovered well, so he was still working on the farm and, you know, enjoying a quality of life, but very worried about a subsequent event, particularly one that would rob him of his ability to live the life he wanted to. So they did, you know, I mean, they were sort of standard Colorado farmers. They had a meat potatoes kind of lifestyle. His wife, you know, totally, they didn't go vegan. That's a little hard for a Colorado yeah. farmer to do, but they did at least make serious lifestyle changes. I can't remember if he used to be a smoker, but he certainly had no exposure to tobacco now. Um, you know, and he did everything he could from a lifestyle point of view to be able to optimize his cardiac health, yet he continued to have cholesterol values north of 200, LDLs north of 200. And he was one of these guys who had legitimate statin intolerance. I mean, you could look, look, a statin could look at him and he would sort of ball up in muscular pain. And it wasn't one of, sometimes people, I think, mistake you know, joint pain or other arthritic pain for statin myopathy. This guy, not at all. And he was super stoic guy. He would have powered through anything, but he was totally debilitated. Could not do any of his chores on the farm with any dose of statin, even once a week. So now he's, he's trucking along, can't get the therapy we know works, doing everything he can from a lifestyle point of view. Cholesterol number is still around low 200s. This is the guy who needs a PCSK9. But it took... The VA's got a pretty streamlined process for this, actually. But even with that, it took a fair amount of advocacy of me and my staff to try and get him on it. And in the meantime, he had another heart attack. And in the meantime, he actually had another bypass. Um, and, you know, we had him on Zetia, and we did everything we could. But just with that kind of genetic profile for the LDL, this is where PCSK9s could really help. And so finally, we got him on it. And um, uh, through the form, he went from, I think it was 210. And the last LDL I saw in him before I left Colorado was probably 105. So he had a huge drop, 100%, or sorry, 50% drop in his LDL. Yeah. And, um, you know, I talked to him recently, but, but I know that'll help alter the trajectory of the heart disease that he has. So I, I don't want to walk away saying, oh, there's no role for PCSK9s. We're totally misguided about pushing these sorts of things. They're really important. But they're really important for a small group of people. So I think it's incumbent upon us as providers to think about our populations and say, okay, we have some great options in our pharmacologic arsenal. We have the product of super smart scientists from the pharma companies working in conjunction with our academic centers. That's, a, that's an outstanding resource that we have. And I wouldn't in any way want to try and impede that. I mean, that's how we've made all the improvements we've made over the last 50 years. Okay. But I think if we don't bring similar work and talent and expertise to sort of our public health um, work and sort of viewing on a population level how best we allocate the various interventions we know to do, pharmacologic, procedural, lifestyle, public health stuff, like, you know, public health interventions, public policy, like a built, what do we think about our built environment? What, what do we think about our food supply and the amount of sugar in our food? What do we think about these various things where people living their day-to-day -day lives, if they have no options for healthy food? if they have no options for a healthy lifestyle? Do we have a role in the public health debate and public infrastructure debate on trying to change that to provide those options to all our patients? I think we do. Um, and if we go through the, the process of what kind of impact would we expect from that, I think we can have a much more nuanced and targeted view of all the things we can provide to the patient. Those sound like great closing words i'm sure i'm sure i've warned you <laughs> no, uh, but no we, we've covered let me just make sure i've i think 
We've yeah. We've covered all the main points that I wanted to hit. Super. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, well thanks for letting me get on the uh the bully pulpit or the soapbox or whatever, but it's obviously something that I really like and I'm passionate about and I think it's it's an exciting time. Thank you for listening to this episode of AP Cardiology. This series is co-sponsored by MedPage Today and by the Division of Medical Education at Washington University in St. Louis School of Medicine. Much thanks to the band Broke for Free, whose song Night Owl on their album Directionless EP, I've Used for My Theme Music. It is used under a Creative Commons license, Attribution 3.0. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.